Live music venues are often the first place that a fan really falls in love with music. As such, venues are an incredibly important part of the music ecosystem in any town. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk about issues facing live music venues. It's all coming up on the future of what? Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. I'm talking to Mara McLaughlin of Music Portland. Mara, welcome back to the future of what. Hey, Portia, great to be here. Yeah, so today we are talking venues, and venues are a big part of any music scene anywhere. So necessarily, they make up an important part of the Portland music scene, too. We thought we'd have you on to help us get a general overview of some of the situations that are facing venues today in Portland in particular, but I think it probably applies across the board. I would imagine most cities have similar issues, given the similarity of conditions where, you know, rents are rising and audiences are diminishing and et cetera. So do you want to just get in there and give us some info? Sure. You know, I think there are definitely issues that are shared by all venues. I think the whole revenue model for live music performance is changing, partly because the public now thinks they can get free music in an instant anywhere they want online. Mm -hmm. So I think venues have a really important messaging and sort of branding challenge to remind people that live music is a very different experience. And I think that cities need to remind themselves of that as well, because live music performance and aggregation of population is one of the great antidotes to social isolation that's happening. You know, yeah, you can stay home and watch Netflix, or you can go out and hear some live music with a band you love or a band you're going to discover and find your tribe It's a really important strategic asset for a city to support live music because it is one of those cultural touchstones that makes us a community. And, you know, how can you expect people to be civically engaged if their life and their consumption of art is done in isolation? Yeah. In a lot of the messaging we've been doing with city government is really positioning these things, I think, rightfully. Live music venues are secular churches. You know, we don't have bowling leagues anymore. We don't have community grange halls. We have live music. And for Portland, you have such a young city. These are really, really important civic engagement moments and opportunities that should be acknowledged by the city and by the community as incredibly important and, you know, larger than the sum of their parts. So that's that's really where we stand in terms of venue defense. I think the, the challenge, the revenue model for venues is different 
and that we can certainly talk about, you know, and kind of how people are compensated and how we make it a sustainable approach for everybody involved from musicians to the venue to the fans. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So now one of the things that comes up, one of the issues that comes up for venues that is perhaps a little bit specific to where we're located is this seismic reinforcement issue, Mm -hmm. basically because everyone's worried the West Coast is going to slide into the ocean with one of these earthquake situations one of these days. I'm at the beach right now, so please don't don't say that way. Well, you're the first to go, but at least it'll be quick, right? <laughs> Portland's kind of inland, so, you know, it's it's always funny to think that that would be the case. But, you know, we do have a lot of seismic activity. So yeah. what is the deal with this? Is this is this a real issue or is this just one of those ways that government has of messing with certain types of businesses? You know, it's not about target. It's about tactic. We are faced with, you know, all science seems to point to a major earthquake event in Oregon, in the Portland area, and all along the Northwest. And so those are definitely, it's definitely going to happen. And the reality is that unreinforced masonry buildings do represent a particular kind of threat in the the face of that kind of event. Now, when exactly that event is going to happen, we don't know. They say something like, and then there's a 20% chance in the next 50 years that there's going to be a major earthquake. And that those are those are not insignificant odds. And I think the city is doing a good job of saying we need to acknowledge that and we need to do what we can to mitigate the risk to health and safety in the face of that. So we all start from the same assumption going, yes, that's a good thing. That's an appropriate role for government. So they started two and a half, almost three years ago by looking at all the buildings in Portland And many of these through sort of volunteer eyeball assessments, identifying all those that they thought were or suspected were unreinforced masonry buildings. So brick buildings, you know, that are very much in the character of Portland. Identifying those as a target was a laudable effort. The tactic problem that we have with this whole approach is that they published that list. So that list was not validated by any sort of structural assessment by professionals that looked at these things. You can't tell from the outside of a building whether there have been structural retrofits done that make it not a threat. But they published a list of more than 1,600 buildings in Portland. By publishing a list, what they did was give developers a pick list to start Mm. hitting. And people are already, you know, up against the developers that would turn our city into a bunch of beige condos. I swear every condo in this city is going to be the thing that you look at five years from now going, oh yeah, that's a 2018. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they look at it already. Right. They just, you know, it, they're not adding to the, to the character of the city. But the city, by publishing the list of these suspected URMs two plus years before their policy committee came out with a plan or a suggestion for what to do with them, seemed a really, really cynical approach. On that list were 38 live music venues. 16 of them have music more than three nights a week. There were also 34 churches on that list. There were lots of, you know, low-income housing and small owner-occupied, 
you know, mixed use buildings and all of these different things. Our focus as Music Portland is definitely on the venues. So of the 38 venues on the original list, I think five of them have closed already. And the reality is venues close. You know, it's a, it's a sort of a volatile business, but I have to believe that the looming expense of full retrofit had to have contributed to some of those businesses saying, you know what, it's hard enough. If I'm looking at a quarter of a million dollars to do a bunch of seismic retrofitting to my building, I'm, it's not even worth it. That was Guest Girl Vocalist by Kinski. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Mara McLaughlin of Music Portland. Was there any chance of city money to help with those retrofits that were going to be required? Not when they published the list because it was just a list. The idea, I think appropriate policy would have been to not publish the list and to let their policy committee, who spent two years looking at this issue, and the policy committee came out with a lot of really good recommendations. They came out saying that we do need to retrofit these buildings. They came out with specific minimum requirements. So there are four sort of levels of safety and structural security in a building. They said they're going to require level one and level two, which involve buckling the floors and the roof to the sidewalls and doing some things that just keep these buildings from crumbling to rubble, which is what makes them so dangerous. 
I think a lot of the, the policy committee's recommendations were great. There was some pushback from people going, oh my God, it's great that you want to do this, but this is a huge expense. So the city came back and said, we're going to give you 20 years. So if you are a business that's replacing your roof, you've got to do it to these standards. So you've got 20 years to do these retrofits. And everybody said, okay, fair, we're going to do this. Everybody's now aiming at the same target to get the work done. And there was also embedded in this, the idea that the city would try to create some creative financing options. And those are things like tax abatements so that, you know, you can offset your tax bill and invest instead in retrofitting. There are Umqua and Washington Mutual and a couple of other ones have said that they are very interested in participating in kind of a public-private partnership in creating creative financing options for these businesses. So there was a whole bunch of really good energy put into this with a timeline that I think is fair, you know, saying do it as quickly as you can, but you have 20 years to get this thing done. So that was all great. Part of that policy also said, do not stigmatize, do not placard these buildings to do anything that penalizes these buildings as they're trying to fulfill this requirement. City council, for some reason, decided that they wanted to placard. So placarding means you're going to put a big sign on these buildings saying unsafe in the smaller print in the case of a giant seismic event. So you're stigmatizing these buildings, saying that they're unsafe. You're also, for landlords, you have to tell the tenant in every document that you share with them, their rental agreements and everything else, you have to say the building that you're in is unsafe which makes it difficult to ensure once you've got a city applied designation as an unsafe building, it does cut off financing. Banks are not going to underwrite something that a city has gone so far as to say this is unsafe. It isn't that these banks haven't already looked at this building and decided, yes, it's unreinforced masonry. We're willing to take that risk. But when the city ups the game and says, now we're going to placard this and say it's unsafe, it changes everything. There is no reason that placarding is a positive move. It's saying these buildings are unsafe. It's not putting placards on the giant glass towers in downtown Portland that are sitting on land that are going to become a pudding when the big one hits. Those are equally unsafe. Not a single bridge in Portland is seismically set up. Well, actually, the Tilikum is, is set up to be something that's going to withstand this. So they're being uneven in the way that they're applying these things. San Francisco looked at placarding and they decided not to because it was counterintuitive to getting the work done that actually needed to happen. So with 38 venues that represent nearly 100 live performances per week, we have about 220 on average live music performances per week. There are 16 of them that represent nearly 100 performances per week. If you placard them, they're not going to close on day one. And certainly some music fans are going to be like, eh, whatever. I don't care. I'm going to go in anyway. But some people aren't. So it means you've reduced their ability to have a viable business. You have cut off them from financing. You will raise their insurance rates. So everything about doing business in these buildings becomes harder. And has this placarding already started? This placarding, they voted on it and the law went into effect November 9th. Oh, wow. But 
what they've done is to say we're going to stage. So January 1st, public buildings are supposed to be placarded, except they've excluded, I think, schools and other things. And it's weird. With a school, they didn't tell the schools that they were going to do this. So they're going to put placards on schools. Can you imagine having a small child? You're taking to school on January 2nd (laughs) and you walk in the door and there's a big thing saying this building is unsafe. Wow. I don't know how they're going to manage that. Our focus obviously is on the venue question. Venues and other business buildings and apartments, things like that, including low-income housing, of which there are 7,000 units that are impacted by this, go on March 1st in 2019. Wow. And then they have said that for nonprofits and churches, they're giving them two years, which makes no sense. Because the placarding, they say, oh, placarding doesn't do anything. City council kept on saying, well, we don't think people won't go in to buildings because they're placarded. The Keller has confirmed, P5 has already confirmed that they've had multiple people calling for refunds of season tickets because the Keller is now designated as unsafe. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bad thing. The point of it, they've said, is to educate people. We want to keep people safe by educating them. Hmm. But if you're educating them, their action is to not go in. Yeah. How is that not destroying a business? Right, right. And it's, it's really, I mean, the cynical side of me says, how is this not just playing into developers' hands? How is this not just oh, you lost your business. This business was, you know, placarded. Everybody stopped going and, oh, we'll just buy up this property and tear it down and build something else that may or may not be reinforced, but that's not the issue. Yeah. And the problem is, you know, I, I endow our city council. They do so many amazing things for our city. This is just a real misstep. Because I think they were they were on track to do all the right things for all the right reasons, except for publishing the list two years in advance and now doing this placarding thing. Because nobody in the music industry or in any of these building owners or businesses are saying that they don't want to be seismically fit. Right, right. Point is this weird one thing that they have stuck to. And Amanda Fritz, the mayor, and Dan Saltzman voted for it. Hmm. So it's three out of the five people voted for this. Hmm. And when, when describing what the purpose was, Amanda Fritz in the city council meeting said, a lot of these are old buildings that could probably be used in better ways, oh, wow. which says to me, let's get developers in there, tear down these sort of characteristic buildings and do something with it. And Dan Saltzman said, this is an educational thing that we're doing. This is, and he said it four or five times, this is duck and cover, which I found myself thinking, has this guy not seen Atomic Cafe? Does not (laughs) understand that duck and cover is the most famous example of propagandistic, nonsensical justification for something, telling kids to duck and cover under their desk to protect themselves from a nuclear blast is the word. It's just weird. It's just bizarre. So the whole motivation for this still doesn't hold water. It doesn't make sense. And the impact to our local music economy 
is enormous. As I say, 16 of the 38 venues representing nearly half of all of our music performances every single week, that's a major impact. Yeah. You know, it means that what is the city's strategy? If music venues and the music culture in Portland is a huge reason why people want to live, work, and visit Portland, then why would you want to kill them? Right. So for living in Portland, the live music culture is an internationally heralded and acknowledged asset. It is a reason that people want to live here. It's a community builder. In terms of working here, we've got 1,200 music businesses. For every venue that closes and musicians move away and there's less music culture, music businesses become less viable and they move away. And I've had two different businesses confirm that, you know, if we keep losing musicians to other places, you know, it becomes a less attractive business environment for a music business. Yeah. Also, we have giant corporations that are moving to Portland and Music Portland is already confirmed with a number of them that are lifestyle, which includes environment and food and our live music reality and perception is a big reason why they can attract and retain talent in a really competitive job market. So you move your business to Portland, including some that have moved from Hillsborough into downtown Portland. So with a Portland address, they can attract better talent. What does the city think is going to happen when you decimate the local music scene? Hmm. What do they think is going to happen to music tourism? Right. And this is, you know, I mean, we're speaking about music Portland and Portland in particular, but this really is something that has far-reaching feelers because because this is happening everywhere. And all you have to do is look at San Francisco to see this is the, exactly what happened in San Francisco. And San Francisco's music scene yeah. diminished just overnight, practically, with the reduction in venues. You know, it can evolve organically but it is not something that is sustained organically in the face of large city development. And it doesn't mean that it can't happen in parallel. Protecting music businesses and assessing a music economy, which is something Music Portland is doing right now, and we're following the model of Austin and Nashville and Seattle and Huntsville, Alabama, places that have said, if you assess the music culture, then you can give tools for policymakers and tools for the public and tools for tourism boards and things to represent the collective impact of a music economy, both direct and indirect. And I think the most successful music city protections and efforts to consolidate and strengthen a music economy, wherever that happens, starts with data. So right now, I would encourage all of your listeners in Portland to go to musicportland.org and complete the economic impact study. If you're a musician, go in and create a profile. That's how we get the data to be able to go back to the city and say, this is what music means in terms of jobs, in terms of revenue. And then all of the cultural assets are gravy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, on that note, Mara McLaughlin of Music Portland, thank you so much for being with us today on The Future of What. Absolutely. Keep doing the good work. Hear me out. I've been losing all the time out of love. As if the misery were designed. Cast a spell. Only hurt. Through 
was The Hex by Horse Feathers. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at MerchTable.com. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Jimmy Byron of McMenamins. Jimmy, welcome to The Future of What. Hi. Hi, Portia. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. So we are doing an episode that is basically looking at issues being faced by venues today. And I know there are a lot of issues that venues face. But I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about the issue of accessibility. Great. What is McMenamin's thinking about accessibility these days? Well, we want to make sure that all our venues are easily accessible. And there's a host of different types of disabilities. And so we make sure that in general, we have systems in place to accommodate anybody. And then we'll make the specific arrangements needed based on that particular need. For example, We have the Crystal Ballroom and we have the Edgefield Concerts and we have the Mission Theater. So we have a host of different types of venues. And sometimes you need to bring in an interpreter. Sometimes you need to make sure that 
people can just physically get into the space and they have good sight lines. So, you know, we have areas and systems in place. We have an email set up called accommodations at edgefieldconcerts.com that's specifically created to communicate with people based on their specific disability and make sure that we're addressing their needs. So McMinimins is kind of unique. And one of the coolest things about you guys as a series of venues is that is that you guys got your way to purchase buildings that are not exactly the same. <laughs> you have <laughs> these very unique structures all over Oregon. And it's, you know, it's always fun to go to a McMinimins property because you know it's going to be different. But that must create some unique challenges for accessibility. So do you guys have that in mind when you purchase a new venue or do you just sort of deal with the building as you find it? Well, you know, we're looking at the buildings based on their historical relevance and what we think we can do with them, what we can turn them into or or how we can salvage them. If we do any type of modification, we always make sure to make that area accessible based on current codes. So the Crystal Ballroom, for example, we really, in order to stay on the historic registry, weren't able to do a lot to the actual building, but there's a elevator. It's easy to get to the elevator from the lobby. It's easy to get to the actual performance room. And then in the room, using, say, a wheelchair as an example, we'll have a designated area that we can put somebody that has good sight lines and we have staff that's able to help them get there. But more to the point of your question, when we built Lola's room, we needed to create a ramp that was to spec to go from the hallway into Lola's room, which was maybe four or six inches higher than the hallway height, especially when we put in the floating dance floor in Lola's. We needed to make sure that we had an accessible bar. So at the end of the bar over where the sound area is, you notice that the bar is lower and it's specifically designed for wheelchairs. So we're always making sure that we have the accommodations and we'll build accordingly when that's dictated. Excellent. So I've been noticing lately that there are more and more types of service animals that people are using. Is that a thing for venues? I mean, I don't know at all about that. So you can tell me how that works for you guys. That's a hot topic issue right now. And you can ask the person, do you require the animal based on a disability? And what service does the animal provide? You are not allowed, and it's a good thing, to ask people specifics on their disability. Some disabilities are are very obvious. Some are very personal, and it's not fair to the customer. When you're dealing with disabilities, the main thing is a level playing field for everyone. Regardless of what your disability is, you should have the same opportunity from the outset to purchase the tickets, to see the show, and to enjoy the show in the same way that anybody else can. And that doesn't mean you get any special privilege beyond that. That doesn't mean that you get anything better than the average customer, but we have to level the playing field so that you can you can have the same experience. So it's very fair that you aren't able to ask people specifics of their disabilities, but it, it creates a problem when you have the service animal, and especially when you have the person that's taking advantage and doesn't require a service animal. Mm. So it's a, it's a very hot topic right now. I take part in a monthly conference call 
with a bunch of venue administrators from around the country. And that's something that we discuss because it's frustrating when we make every effort to accommodate someone with a disability and then somebody comes in and takes advantage of those systems. It's very frustrating and it impacts the way, not us, but it could definitely impact the way that someone would look at a truly disabled person that has a service animal that they really need. If you've seen so many fakes and people taking advantage of the system, it's hard to not prejudge in that instance. Gotcha. Does that kind of make sense, Portia? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I do. You know, so the vest means nothing on the animal. You can get those things on the internet. Mm. We just ask, what service does the animal provide? Is the animal necessary for your disability? And, you know, we've had plenty of people go, no, it's just my pet. I thought I could get it in. Or, <laughs> well, it isn't really. And, and they'll be honest. That's good. We'll say, well, thank, thanks. Appreciate that. But a lot of people know the tricks and they know what they can and can't say. And you can't pry. Right. Yes, it's for my disability. And they may be specific. It's for my seizures. You know, they, they could say something that's specific and that we can't counter. In that case, we just let them in. We have no choice. We, we have to let the animal in. Even if we know the person's lying, there's no recourse for us. And, and that's something that venues, businesses, airlines are, are dealing with right now. Yeah. I mean, I've just heard a, a lot of talk about it. My question is, does it run into some other types of law with regard to, you know, animals in restaurants or places where food is prepared. I mean, just stuff like that. I don't know. That, that's outside of my area. When, when I'm talking about the venues, there are two types of service animals, dogs and small horses. People always laugh about the small horses, but some people need them for actual physical support. They're kind of at your elbow height. Uh-huh. I've never had a small horse, <laughs> but, but the service animal is primarily a dog and it can be anything from seeing eye to remind you to take your medicine. A service animal is not a comfort animal and a comfort animal does not currently have any of the protections of ADA. Interesting. So we're talking specifically service animals. So you have people that have their comfort animals. I need this. And that is not protected by ADA as far as us allowing access into our venue. Gotcha. And a service animal is trained. You are not to pet a service animal. It is not a pet. And it is just as, I don't want to call an animal a tool, but it's just like your cane or your glasses or your hearing aid. It's something that is necessary for that person to be able to have a level playing field and experience an event in the same way that anybody else would. So it's very important that we do accommodate these animals and let, and let people bring them in. If the animal is barking, if the animal is misbehaved, it's probably not a service animal. Mm, yeah. Even if it is a trained service animal, if it's misbehaving, we can ask the animal to leave. I've never had an experience that a truly trained service animal has misbehaved, though. Right. Yeah. No, they're, they're very good as, as a rule. The other issue that's facing us, certainly in Portland these days, is seismic regulations. And I know that that's been an issue for a lot of venues. Have you guys had to deal with that? We're in the middle of it now. I went to the city council meeting. We've had some communication with people in the mayor's office, and we're definitely paying attention to that. Several of our venues are directly impacted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know that that's a real big issue for venues because it could seriously, I mean, it could be incredibly costly 
to retrofit a venue, a building, an entire building to meet seismic standards. So I know that that's a problem that a lot of people are facing. Yeah, it becomes even more difficult once there's a placard put out as far as trying to get financing to bring your venue up to code. I'll just say from my McMenamin's hat, my personal feelings aside, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to discuss right now. From my McMenamin's standpoint, we have always complied with every rule. We have brought the crystal ballroom up to 100% compliance. We're fully reinforced. We're not a unreinforced masonry building. We are a reinforced masonry building. If you're downtown and you look at like the Henry's Brewery and you see the exoskeleton of the steel girders that are supporting the building, the crystal has the same. It's just inside. It's internal. It's covered with curtains, but we have the same. And on one of the walls, we've used a silicone technology that they used in Japan that's much more flexible. That is literally cores that are poured through the walls. Wow. So the crystal, the crystal is fine. It is not supposed to be on the list. That's a mistake. There are many mistakes with that list. So we're not impacted, but we do have other venues that are, and it's frustrating that in order to open, in order to you know, pull the permits, we had to go to a certain level and we exceeded that on our own. We exceeded that with the intention to get fully compliant by the timelines that were previously set. We were ahead of schedule and our venues are anywhere from 50 to 60 to 90% there reinforced. And so having a blanket placarding ordinance that no other city would ever do unless it was purely to penalize people that weren't being compliant is ridiculous. And that's what we're dealing with right now. Great. Well, Jimmy Byron, music director at McVenomans, thanks so much for being with me on The Future of What? My pleasure. That was Vampire by Wimps. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What, 
I'm talking to Cassie Wilson of Half Access. Cassie, welcome to the future of what? Thank you for having me. (laughs) Yes, thank you for being here. It's so nice to talk to you. So tell everybody, what is Half Access? Half Access is my nonprofit that I started last year to increase accessibility at music venues. So our website has accessibility information on venues across the country and beyond. And then our plan is to use that information to work with venues to increase accessibility. Wow, that's a noble mission. So what inspired you to start this nonprofit? Last spring, I was just getting back into going to shows after having a pretty intensive surgery. And so I was more conscious about my safety at shows because before that, I had been just putting myself in the crowd at shows in order to be able to see because I wasn't aware of any other spaces that existed for me to watch concerts. And so after I started asking at venues, like, is there somewhere else that I can watch where I don't have to be in the crowd, but still see and realizing that a lot of times they didn't even know what I meant and there wasn't a place designated for people with disabilities. I was like, okay, well, clearly there's, something wrong right now and it needs to be changed. So why don't I change it? (laughs) Nice. That's awesome. So what are the range of features that venues really need to have in order to be fully accessible to people with disabilities? Some of the key things are like obviously being able to enter the venue. There's still a lot of venues because they were built before the Americans with Disabilities Act was signed in 1990. They only have stairs and no other way to get inside. And then once you are inside, like having somewhere that's like relatively close to the stage where people can see at sitting level without having a crowd obstruct the view while also being safe from the crowd is super important. And also like having seating available to people who aren't in wheelchairs, posting warnings about intensive lighting and also just like making sure to like basically like having the staff be trained and knowing that disability doesn't look like one certain type of thing. Like, it's not just people in wheelchairs or people who use canes. Like, there are also invisible disabilities, which I think is something that doesn't get talked about enough and leads to a lot of discrimination. Here in Portland, I feel like I have seen a lot of venues that have access because I've noticed in the crowd, you know, when I'll notice, like, a a section that has a bunch of people where they're all in wheelchairs or in some occasions, like even like with service animals, is it sort of a thing where the bigger the venue, the more ADA compliant they probably are? Is it sort of a, like a capacity issue or, or what, what, what have you found it to be? I think there is definitely some correlation with, yeah, size of venue and amount of accessibility because, yeah, the smaller the venue, the more likely it is to be inaccessible, even if it's like accessible to get inside, like there'll be an accessible seating area. And I think a lot of it might have to do with just like the amount of people coming through. Maybe there just haven't been as many people with disabilities coming through those venues to be able to speak up and let them know that there's an issue or in comparison to bigger venues where they are serving much larger audiences. And so there's a higher chance of people speaking up about the situation if it's not as ideal. Yeah. So are you sort of going through the country <laughs> and sort of rating venues or how, how are you bringing venues into, you know, awareness that this is something that needs to happen? 
So on our website, we have a submission form where anyone can submit accessibility info on venues from anywhere. We've even gotten submissions already from like Germany and Slovenia, which has been really mind blowing. (laughs) But yeah, so we currently have over 110 venues in our database and it keeps growing and we're working on outreach to promoters and different contacts in different areas outside of Portland. So that way we can expand our database even more. Excellent. And what kind of reaction are you getting to this endeavor? It's been so positive and so many people have been so thankful that something like this exists now. I know it's a resource I wish I had when I started going to shows because it's very stressful to go to a venue for the first time and not know if you're actually going to be able to fully enjoy the show with your friends. And so, yeah, people have just been really excited that this is being worked on. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I noticed that on your website, you have some testimonials from people. Yeah, we've been doing interviews with different people in the disabled community to just share more perspectives from like people who need different types of accommodations and shed some light and be able to learn more from them too. Yeah. Well, Cassie Wilson of Half Access, the website is halfaccess.org. Keep up the good work and thanks so much for being with us on the future of what? Yeah, thank you again. We're excited to announce our new podcast series, Girl Germs. Check out the trailer now. We're so cool, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're so cool, cool. We're so cool, yeah, yeah. Fuck you too, cool schmuck. 25 years ago, seminal riot girl band Bratmobile released their debut album, Potty Mouth. I'm sure he told you what we paid him for recording the record. One piece of pizza and one bottle of hair dye. Along with their contemporaries in Bikini Kill and Heavens to Betsy, Molly Newman, Allison Wolf, and Aaron Smith pushed the boundaries of music and politics, challenging ideas of who could play music and hold power on stage. These Riot Girl pioneers championed self-expression and visibility for women and girls in the scene, on and off stage. You know, that the models for being a, a woman musician, in my view, in my sort of like small world view then, like not really being a punker yet, was singer-songwriters and, you know, R&B performers and artists. Yeah, it was pretty political. Like, we thought it was important to have an all-girl band and to work with other women. I think it's important for young girls to be able to see kind of images of themselves or ideas of themselves to think that they can do it too. In the early 1990s, this underground feminist punk movement seems to have been just the right idea at just the right time. This whole idea of Riot Girl, it was so instantaneous. It was so like everyone was was in. So there was, you know, there were records being put out. There were shows. There was a girl night. It all happened within a kind of a matter of months, you know. And the media situation was it was pretty intense. They emerged into my world like such a breath of fresh air. Not just a breath, but a hurricane of fresh air. On this podcast, Molly, Allison, and Aaron reflect on how the band got together, recording their first album, and the scene that inspired them. We'll also hear from their peers, journalists, and younger artists about Potty Mouth's continuing legacy. All of those bands just like completely changed my life because all of a sudden I was like, these are people who look like me and, you know, maybe like sound like me and they are like outwardly identifying as like queer, 
I'm not saying it sounded easy, but it sounded like accessible in a way. It's like, oh, you can just do a band with just a guitar and drums. That's so cool. This is Girl Germs, a short podcast series from Kill Rock Stars. Subscribe to this show and find out more at killrockstars.com. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Kinski, Horse Feathers, Wimps, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week. Can I have a taste of your ice cream?